Welcome to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. This week, Seattle Mayor Bruce Harrell gets tough on illegal homeless encampments. Did Vladimir Putin make a drastic miscalculation with his military during the invasion of Ukraine? We'll hear from a military expert. And on this spring ahead weekend, Congress wants to tell you how to set your clocks. But first, for those who enjoy Latin, Sine die. The state legislature has adjourned their 60-day short session here in 2022, but a lot of big changes came through during those days. Joining me now is Fox 13 News political reporter Matt Markovich. And well, first off, let's just kind of go through some of the top line stuff. What what are some of the big highlights that uh, passed out of the legislature this session? Well, I think it's funny that you say the way you said it, sine die. You better sign it or die. I think that's the way uh, Democrats <laughs> were thinking <laughs> in this legislature. As you know, just to refresh, you have a Democratic governor and you have the House and Senate led by Democrats. So it's predominantly a Democratic agenda. They wrote the two big budget bills, the uh, big supplemental bill and the, and the transportation bill with very little Republican input. So what came out of it were democratically led ideas. And uh, predominantly what we talked about were taxes. You know, that's we all pay the taxes that go to Olympia. And this year they had just billions of dollars in supplemental uh, a, a tax surplus. And a lot of the Republicans were saying, well, maybe we should just give that back to the taxpayers in form of tax breaks. But that did not happen with but the Democratic. Wasn't uh, the budget surplus also because of the infusion of federal money from COVID stimulus? Of course, of course. And you could use that COVID money for other things that are in general fund and then, you know, cut back on what the taxpayers had been paying for that could be covered by the COVID money. But that didn't happen. Uh, I think it goes to say. If you give some politician a bag of money, he's going to use two bags of money. And so what you have is this monumental, what the Democrats are saying, uh, historic budget. They spent a lot of money, as uh, Pat Sullivan, who was one of the budget writers, told me on the last day of session. This is to reach out to every person in Washington state to lift them up, lifts up everybody, no matter what their income category was. Uh, that's the overall theme that they wanted to get. And the Democrats are sticking to it. And of course, the Republicans are they say, basically saying the biggest failure, according to J.T. Wilcox, who is the House minority leader, was not giving any money back to the taxpayers. Of course, there's a lot of talk about that supplemental budget, but then you had that big transportation package that was passed as well. $17 billion package, $1 billion to go toward the bridge at on I-5 that stretches between Oregon and Washington State. Now it's up to Oregon to pony up some money, and obviously the feds will be paying some money for that bridge. But uh, they earmarked a billion dollars for that project. It's a widening project through Vancouver, then obviously the bridge that needs to be replaced. And I think it's what goes back to what we were just talking about, Jeff, is that they had this wad, a big wad of cash to pay for a lot of these transportation projects. And what's interesting, and I think maybe this is kind of a nerdish thing if you follow politics in, in Olympia, this is the first time I can remember and that a lot of politicians are saying where they took general fund money because they had so much and put it toward transportation projects. With a, a general fund, you fund things like education and childcare, people-oriented initiatives, rather than dirt and asphalt and bridges and things like that. So to put that people-oriented money into a transportation budget, that shows how big that transportation really budget really is. Another controversial topic that was moving its way through the legislature this year was the reform of police reform. What happened there? Well, last year you had some bills that 
the police agencies were basically saying restricted them from doing their job. If they had pulled over somebody and they wanted to question them without probable cause, it's just called reasonable suspicion. That person can basically get in their car and drive away and walk away. They, the cops couldn't hold them. They couldn't arrest them until they had a probable cause to arrest them. So police agencies were saying, hey, you really tied our hands. So uh, this year they had some loosening of that. They, they had a couple of bills that allow police now to actually detain people after for questioning. They allowed more uh, officers to use use of force if there's an immediate sense of danger, not an imminent sense of danger. Now, these are you know marginal words, and those are words that could be argued in court, but that's what kind of the changes that they made with these police bills. It's, it's made the police agencies a, a, a lot happier. They didn't get everything they wanted, but at the same time, the people who thought that police are using excessive force, there's still more restrictions than there were two years ago on how police can handle suspects. And so it was kind of a compromise in that situation. And then there are some bills that just went down in flames, didn't get a vote or didn't get past a, a certain cutoff deadline. And, and one of those was the baby of the Republicans, and that was curtailing the governor's emergency powers. Yes, you had people throughout the state wanting to see the governor's powers restricted, especially because of what has been going on for COVID for two years and this uh, health emergency. And you had Democrats and Republicans wanting to have some sort of curb on the governor's powers. But when it all came down to a potential vote on the floor, the Democrats who opened the debate at 1.30 in the morning quickly shut it down because the Republicans were going to filibuster because they weren't happy with the bill. And the bill basically said that whatever party was in power, where they have, let's say, a governor that was Democrat and you had a Democrat leading the House and the Senate, he would always fall in favor of governor continuing his powers because the way with bill was written is if you had the four corners as it's known the leadership in the house and the senate had to get together and vote to endorse whatever the governor or or change what the governor wanted to do and the votes would never be there to oppose the governor and so the and there's so many other items on the table late in the session at 1.30 in the morning, or actually 1.50 in the morning on that day, the Democrats pulled it off the floor and it was dead. So that quest to have curbed the governor's powers is gone. And now the governor can continue his COVID emergency for as long as he wants. And there's real no check and balance to stop him. And gun control legislation was also a top priority of Democrats having passed a ban on high capacity magazines. Which was a big one for the Second Amendment folks. It was been tried for several years to pass a law banning high capacity magazine rounds, over 15 rounds in the state of of Washington, and this year it finally passed. But Jeff, there's something that's really controversial that did pass this year. Pickleball is the official sport of Washington State. <laughs> yeah, yes, I'm sure that they had to clear filibusters and all sorts of procedural hurdles before <laughs> it got passed and sent to the governor's desk. All right, Matt, thank you so much, but don't go anywhere. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to discuss Mayor Bruce Harrell's efforts to clean up the streets of Seattle. That's on the way when the Northwest Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. This past week, we saw two significant homeless encampments cleared out by the city of Seattle. One was across the street from Seattle City Hall. Another was at 
at Westlake Center. And so far, it appears that Bruce Harrell, mayor of the city of Seattle, seems to be keeping his campaign promise to keep the streets clear of homeless encampments. Joining me now once again, Matt Markovich, Fox 13 News political reporter. And, you know, we haven't seen a lot of mayors stick to their campaign promises in recent years, but this is a big one, and he's really sticking to it. He is, and he's been very clear on what types of camps can be cleared right away uh, because the MDAR rules, as it's known in Seattle, allow for a camp to be cleared without notice if it's considered an obstruction or you know a, a hazard to safety, a pedestrian walking down the street. And the camps that you just talked about, one near Westlake Center and the one right across the street from City Hall, fit that category. They were on the sidewalk. They weren't off the sidewalk. They weren't in a park area. So they don't need notice to the campers that they had to be removed. Although in this situation, uh, outreach workers from the Seattle Hope team were going out to these camps, trying to get people into shelter prior to that. And regarding that camp at City Hall, this was attempt to be cleared two weeks ago. And then activists showed up, stalled out the process, and then it got cold and rain. And Mayor Harrell told me personally that that was delayed because of the cold and rain. They didn't finish cleaning up that camp because of the weather conditions. But then out of the blue with a one hour notice uh, this week, he decided, or I should say the city parks department, because that's who actually cleans up these areas, decided to clear that camp with a one hour notice. And police were out in force in this one. And it got, they got there before that. Agitators who have uh, been trying to stop this, these sweeps even showed up. And what Mayor Harrell was asked even this week about his homelessness response plan, uh, because we've been clearly seeing, like you just said, that he has stepped up efforts or his administration has stepped up efforts to clear camps that are visible downtown and on sidewalks. There's a very clear effort to do that quickly. But yet when he's asked about his plan to clear our camps, he's punting. He's he's saying, I have a plan. Just let me implement it. And when asked what that plan is, he hasn't given a response. Yeah, and we've seen that at a number of press conferences where reporters from, whether it's Northwest News Radio, Fox 13 News, Como News, have all asked him multiple times, and he just doesn't mm-hmm. want to give an answer. But I guess, you know, not not to take his side on it, you could point to his actions, you know, forget what a politician says, look at what he does, and he seems to be clearing out the streets and cleaning up these, these encampments. So what's what hasn't been said, Jeff, but I know this is a fact because it just hasn't been made public. There's an extreme effort right now to clear up downtown for one, people going back to work and two, for tourism. On March 16th, city employees, and there's 11,000 of them, will be allowed to go back to work, to go back to their offices. Uh, Not everybody will be required. They can still making adjustments for people who want to stay at home or can work from home. But that starts March 16th. And after April 1st, there's going to be a push to really open up downtown to businesses and to invite tourism back to to prepare for the tourism season. You're going to have those cruise ships, more cruise ships are going to be showing up this summer. So there is a real big push that has it hasn't been openly spoken about to clear downtown and make it look nice. Uh, and despite what the activists may say, that's the intent here is to invite people back downtown to encourage them to come back to work to their office buildings downtown. And you know the economic, uh, the ecosystem then, because they'll go out and buy a sandwich and get a haircut and do some shopping downtown. That helps the local businesses. And that's the intent for all this. And again, we're going to be waiting to see what his formulated plan is. But again, like you said, 
Well, maybe actions speak louder than words. Rather than say what he's doing, he's just going to do it. And he is making good on his promise. They're slowly working on the parks, but he did make a part of his uh, campaign promises to focus in on clearing out parks so it can be restored to where they were uh, prior to tents, parking their uh, people parking their tents in the parks as, as well as prior to the pandemic. So I think the first series of actions we're seeing is on the streets of downtown. And as you know, there's this huge emphasis now. We have a, a $10 million donation from high-tech companies to focus and have a almost a target zero of people who are living on the street in downtown Seattle in the near future. And the King County Regional Homeless Authority is implementing a plan with that money. We haven't heard from them. And it's interesting to note that it was reported that the King County Regional Homelessness Authority had no idea that Mayor Harrell and his administration were doing these sweeps in downtown Seattle. And reportedly uh, from Publicola, they're unhappy about it, that they weren't told about it. So uh, they're already a little friction between the mayor and the CEO, Mark Dones, of the King County Regionalist Regional Homelessness Authority. But we're three, three and a half years into the King County Regional Homeless Authority, and they really haven't done anything. Well, this is their first year where they actually took over the, all the contracts that the city of Seattle has been doing for outreach workers. And well, Seattle still holds a few of them, but the majority of the effort through King County, the city of Seattle, other cities, this is they're just ramping up. And, and yet, they're, they're handling kind of the back end of where people go and stay in shelters. That's kind of what they're doing right now. But we expect them to start setting some policy on how they want to handle people who are living unsheltered. And we quite haven't heard that yet, but they haven't, I don't, maybe they just don't have the manpower yet or the right people in place to announce a policy decision and back it up with people on the ground. So in the meantime, it falls to the city and the county. Yeah. Well, the county is basically the regional homelessness authority. The city of Seattle has earmarked a lot of money, several millions of dollars to do its own thing, regardless of what the regional homeless authority wants. So, and Harold has said that he'll continue to do what he feels the city needs to be done on homelessness, the unsheltered on the street on his own. He doesn't have to get the, the go ahead from the regional homeless authority and the CEO, Mark Jones, to do it. So he's got another, you know, he's got his card in his one pocket and he's got the homeless authority in the other pocket. And right now he's playing with the pocket that he's got his own cash in and can control. And that's the streets of Seattle. All right, Matt Markovich, Fox 13 News political reporter. Thank you so much as always. You're welcome. When we come back, the latest on Russia's invasion of Ukraine and a potential miscalculation by the Russian leader when the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Here's Elisa Jaffe. Russia's invasion of Ukraine is in its third week. Pressure is growing on the United States and NATO to do more to curb the violence. Joining us is retired four-star general and military analyst Barry McCaffrey of Seattle. Sir, what more can the U.S. do? The administration keeps ratcheting up the sanctions. And do you think the oil ban will trigger retaliation from Russia? It's hard to know what is in Putin's mind. Uh, He's made a disastrous strategic era of judgment. His assumptions were he could take down the Ukrainian government in short order, three days to a week. Uh, They're fighting courageously. The U.S. and other uh, European nations are providing enormous support, uh, not just in terms of uh, smart munitions, anti-tank, anti-air munitions, uh, but also food, armor plating, helmets, uh, and needless to say, incredible levels of support for refugees. So 
I think President Biden and his senior people, Secretary Blinken and Secretary Austin, have wisely tried to stay out of direct combat with the Russians in the air or on the ground. Poland proposed sending those fighter jets to Ukraine via a a U.S. NATO base in Germany. But the administration, the Biden administration, turned that down and said getting fighter jets into a war zone where they'd be unwelcome is easier said than done. Do you think that was a smart move? And, And what does this do to our relationship with Poland? Publicly right now, as we as we talk, spokesman Kirby and the Pentagon's making tremendous efforts to state that there are no ongoing diplomatic problems with Poland. They caught the United States by surprise. They clearly are also extremely reluctant to be seen as a co-belligerent in the war in Ukraine. So the Poles are trying to unload those uh, older aircraft on the U.S. and then have us put them into the fight. And uh, the result of the Department of Defense deliberations was that there was a concern that that would be publicly escalatory. And I also think it's a diversion from the problem at hand. We can't create a Ukrainian armed forces that matches the capability of the Russians with armor, artillery, aircraft capabilities. So they're going to have to fight this in what we call an asynchronous manner. Uh, using these Javelin missiles to destroy Russian armor. Allegedly, they've knocked out more than a 1,000 armored vehicles. They've brought down, allegedly, 40 or more Russian aircraft with ground-to-air Stinger missiles. They're fighting quite valiantly, but look, this is a desperate situation. The, the Ukrainians have asked for anything they can get, and I'm, I'm sorry that the MiG-29s came up. It's not going to solve the problem. We see a lot of destroyed Russian tanks and equipment on the sides of the roads. Do you believe, though, that most of the Russian forces' equipment is not even in use? Well, they've had great trouble bringing to bear their overwhelming combat power. What they now seem to be doing is trying to use artillery and long-range missiles and aircraft in a terrorism campaign against the Ukrainian civilian population. Uh, creating massive misery and internally displaced popu- uh, po- people by the literally by the hundreds of thousands. Mariupol in the south is a dramatic example of that. It's a desperate criminal assault uh, on c- civil populations that really can't be defended. Uh, unlike military units, which can dig in, which can hide. You can't hide an urban city. So Kharkiv and soon to Odessa will be attacked on the ground. And clearly Kiev, the outskirts, are an example of Russian indiscriminate use of lethal firepower. When Russia agrees to these ceasefires so that the people can get out of Ukraine and, and head to Poland or wherever they feel safer, is that just so that Russia can resupply and build up? Is that the only reason you think they're doing that? Well, I don't think they're they're in any way intend to have a ceasefire. Uh, this is just talk, uh, so that the optics looks as if uh, to their own population, uh, it's a propaganda move that's n- not believable in the West. Uh, but but I think they have zero intention of easing the problem with the civilian population. They see this as the Achilles' heel of the Ukrainian military. How long can they tolerate? Uh, starvation, lack of electricity, lack of water, lack of uh, power to to heat homes, at what point would that uh, make the Ukrainian military say, okay, we've got to declare these open cities and we'll withdraw to the West? I think Putin is 
increasingly stuck in a dilemma that worsens for him by the day. Time is an ally of the Ukrainians, as are massive Russian casualties. And so far, to, I think, the world's astonishment, uh, Ukrainian courage is carrying the day. Are these still the early days of this conflict, in your estimation? I don't think this is going to go on much longer than 30 to 90 days. Uh, I don't see uh, how the uh, situation gets resolved. Putin will have zero intention of backing out. If his military breaks down completely, which it has not uh, yet done, uh, I suppose he might look for a a quick face-saving maneuver and state, well, I'm only after annexation of a legal annexation of the Donbass region, the Crimea, and a land bridge. He might go that route. But until he has internal disturbances that are significant, and he's had arrested six or 7,000 brave Russian citizens for protesting, but the large majority, allegedly two-thirds of the Russian population, supports Putin. So he's not going to stop. He's not going to back out uh, until something dramatic changes his political calculus. What else do we possibly have in our hip pocket that could change things? I think these, uh, not just the economic sanctions, which are unprecedented and are definitely having an immediate impact on the Russian economy, but I think it's the global shunning and abhorrence of the Russian regime that will cause, a over time, a dramatic uh, awareness among the Russian people of the, of the crime being perpetuated in their name by their sons. But can the Ukrainians hold out long enough for that to happen? The economic sanctions alone won't crash the economy uh, enough to change Putin's mind. But you know that there are now more than two or three hundred signals in which the global community is communicating to Putin and his senior people, you're becoming a pariah nation. So, you know, Putin then can go back to Stalinist repression to maintain control over the internal state. But he's in trouble, and every day it's going to get worse. Retired four-star General Barry McCaffrey of Seattle, thank you for your time. Yep, good to be with you, Lisa. And that's Elisa Jaffe. Meanwhile, as Russia's invasion of Ukraine rages on, the rest of the world seems content to just sit back and watch. We'll have more on that part of the story when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. The rest of the world says it is standing by and with the people of Ukraine, but so far, no country seems willing to join the fight against the Russian invasion. At least that's the sentiment expressed by President Volodymyr Zelensky. Shane Harris watching it unfold for the Washington Post and spoke with our Bill O'Neill. Zelensky, Shane, seems to have a point, as the message from the U.S. and others seem to be, you got this, but you're on your own? Yeah, I mean, you can say it that way in the sense that they're on your own insofar as the U.S. and NATO allies are willing to provide certain kinds of weapons, namely things like shoulder-fired missiles to shoot at tanks and aircraft, but we're not going to be sending in planes, and we're certainly not going to be sending in troops. That's the message from the West. And Zelensky has been saying, look, you know, we appreciate your support, and we know you're with us, but what we need uh, are the weapons to actually repel these Russian invaders. And if we don't have that, uh, we're, we're looking at a grim future here. Why are Western powers so reluctant to help? Is it all those nuclear 
missiles the Russians have, honestly? That's really what it comes down to. That's right. I mean, we're talking about a nuclear power here. And, and, and for all of the the success that Ukrainian forces have been having so far in the, as we enter the third week of the war, and as much as Russian troops are getting bogged down and having logistical problems, this is still a nuclear power. And the question remains, if the United States or other NATO allies intervened with troops or with planes or something that Russia would see as escalatory, um, would they respond with nuclear weapons? And of course, that's a nightmare scenario. And the fact that I think that the West does not know for sure what Putin's red line really is, is what's uh, behind a lot of this hesitation to go any further in providing weapons to Ukraine or to engage in the fight directly with the Russians. You could almost say in a lot of ways that uncertainty really is a departure from the Cold War where we kind of knew where the boundaries were. Yeah, you know, in the Cold War, there were, there were there was a lot of signaling. I think people understood where these escalatory steps were on the ladder. This is different, of course. This is Russia has now unprovoked invaded another country in Europe. Uh, in some ways, this is kind of, you know, a, a bit of the kind of war scenario we envisioned in the Cold War if the Russians were ever to try and start seizing territory in a land war had it began. But of course, Ukraine not being a NATO member changes the calculus here. So, you know, and, and importantly, from Zelensky's perspective, what he's also asking the West to do is say, look, if you're not going to give us planes, at least enforce a no-fly zone so that they can't attack us from the air. And the West looks at that and says, but yes, but that's one step towards a possible encounter with Russian planes. And if our planes are shooting down theirs, are we at war with Russia? So it's this very strange scenario in which Russia is at war with Ukraine. We're watching a war happen. We're sort of supplying them with the weapons to fight that war, but not in a way that we think the Russians would see as escalatory. It's this very gray, murky uh, situation right now. That doesn't totally stop, you know, the United States from ramping it up a little bit, though, as we saw the vice president do today in Poland. That's right. And it doesn't also stop the United States from possibly giving other weapons uh, short of air pl- aircraft that might help the Ukrainians to shoot down Russian planes. And there has been some talk we know from the Pentagon today, a senior defense official telling reporters that the United States is looking at providing other platforms that the Ukrainians could use. Uh, it's possibly this is the S-300 missile system, which I think Bulgaria has right now. It's actually a Russian system that could give the Ukrainians more ammunition to shoot down planes at higher altitudes and maybe make something of their own kind of no-fly zone. So we are still entertaining the possibility of inching closer towards more weapons. It's just that the United States has kind of drawn a line at aircraft and at troops, and that's the result of you know analysts and policymakers saying, what do we think is a step too far for Russia? At the same time, you know, who can say what's really a step too far from Russia? They just invaded another country without provocation. That's the big question as we go forward. That's Shane Harrison. Read much more online at WashingtonPost.com. That's Bill O'Neill. Now, once again, Elisa Jaffe. On the economic and political front, the U.S. and its allies upping the pressure on Vladimir Putin. President Biden announcing today he's taking steps to strip Russia of its favored nation trading status. We're also taking a further step, abandoning imports of goods from several signature sectors of the Russian economy, including seafoods, vodka, and diamonds. Joining us on the Northwest Newsline is ABC's Elizabeth Schulze. And explain, first of all, Elizabeth, what it means to take away their favored nation trading status. Hey, good to be with you. Well, basically, this removes Russia's status as a normal trading partner. Most countries are subject to these favored trading partner rules, meaning that there are certain tariffs or other other restrictions that can't be imposed. In fact, there are only three countries now, including Russia, that are not 
part of these normal trade relations, and they are Russia, Cuba, and North Korea. So you can imagine, really, this is a pretty significant step as far as further isolating the Russian economy from global trade. And it is notable that this came in conjunction, not just from the U.S., but also with those G7 allies, too. And then they can also impose tariffs on a lot of Russian goods. That's right. So it basically allows these economies to impose more restrictions on what's coming in. And in fact, we are already kind of seeing early signs of that, along with the move to revoke Russia's trading status. The U.S. is issued, the president issued an executive order that's going to ban U.S. imports of things like Russian seafood, of vodka, and of diamonds. These account for a small portion of trade, but it does essentially send this message that the president is saying that Americans shouldn't be financing Russia's economy. It shouldn't be financing in any way this war in Ukraine. And then when they're moving to cut Russia's ability to get financing from the World Bank or International Monetary Fund, how is that different from what we've been doing? How are they ramping things up? Yeah, this is important because this shows this international effort with other institutions like the World Bank and the IMF that traditionally provide financing to struggling countries when they're struggling to pay their debts. And we know that Russia's economy is already in a position where it could possibly default on its debt. We've seen the economy downgraded already by several credit agencies. And part of that is because it's been cut off from Western financing. The banking system's pretty much virtually isolated at this point. So by not being able to get financing from the International Monetary Fund, that risk kind of exacerbating this existing financial crisis already in place in Russia. And this is basically Biden and the White House saying this probably denies Russia more than a billion dollars in export revenues. What have been the impacts so far of all of the sanctions and actions taken by our administration? Well, it is important to note that the U.S. and Russia's trade is pretty limited. Most of what we get is in the form of oil or energy or raw materials. And that's still a very small portion of our imports of those compared to other countries. But combined, these steps that have been taken, particularly from the European countries with the U.S., and then as well as the private sector really kind of cutting out Russia from a lot of the global international business community, that is having an effect. And where have we seen that play out? Russia's stock market has now been closed for two straight weeks. There's a concern that if it opens, it could absolutely just crash. The ruble has already tumbled. The Russian currency is valued at less than a penny now. So it's a lot harder for average Russian households to have their rubles stretched. And ultimately, there's a concern that there could be runs on banks, that there will be an overall fear of the banking sector collapsing. And we have seen throughout history how that just leads to a broader economic and often social and political crisis, too. ABC's Elizabeth Schulze in Washington. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thanks so much. Still to come, how should you set your clocks? Congress has some ideas, but it's a perennial debate that never seems to go anywhere when the Northwest Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Joining me now on the Northwest Newsline is ABC's Andy Field. Does anybody really know what time it is? That is the question, Jeff, on (laughs) Capitol Hill today, where they had hearings about daylight saving time. And I'm glad that you said that right. Daylight saving time, not savings time. Maybe the only thing I get right in this newscast here. (laughs) Uh, Yes, they're they're debating, and they've done this uh, many, many times over the years, where uh, they said, you know, do we really need daylight saving time anymore? And uh, the answer is always, we don't know. (laughs) They roll out people for and against it. Uh, There was one woman who actually thinks we should extend standard time. That's where we fall back an hour. We don't have that extra hour of daylight. He says it maximizes sunlight 
the winter mornings when we need more light to wake up and be alert. And it minimizes sunlight late in the summer evenings when there's too much light can work against our sleep. So there's that. Of course, the flip side of that argument is people like having it lighter longer after work so they can go out and enjoy the day. Certainly restaurants and, and other folks in the hospitality industry like it lighter in the early evening so uh, they can get more people out and not sleeping going back home. It used to be that the farmers, well, at least we thought it was, maybe it's a wives' tale, that the farmers liked it lighter in the morning so they get up and do their farm chores. They don't necessarily need it that light in the afternoon. And then there's the myth that it's really saving us energy, but because we use energy all around the clock now with computers and TVs and air conditioners and everything electronic, you're really not saving that much energy. So if you go back and forth, these hearings tend to be a wash and nothing ever gets done about it. So why now? Why are they taking, why is the Congress taking up this issue now? It's like National Peach Day in Washington. They, they have to vote on something. <laughs> and, uh, I think they did pass National Peach Day, so they did get something done. This has been coming up at least as long as I've been in Washington, which has been 102 years. And almost every year you see a hearing on this, should we get rid of it? Should we not get rid of it? Some states are not waiting for Congress. Arizona, a long time ago, way back, 1968, they got out of it. They experimented with it a little bit, but Arizona has not been in daylight saving time for a long time. And then there's Puerto Rico, U.S. Virgin Islands, Northern Mariana Islands, Guam, and American Samoa, all places that, for the most part, are much closer to the equator where daylight saving time doesn't make that much difference as you get closer to the equator. It makes more of a difference when you go north. I was in Minnesota. You wouldn't think it's that far north. North, but it is uh, when daylight saving time switched over when it was back in May when we did those things. And uh, what was interesting is that the light uh, was was so bright because you're at such a, a high elevation on the earth or at least latitude that uh, it stayed light when the sun was going down almost till 930 quarter to 10 at night. And of course, you know, if you're in uh, the northern reaches of the globe up at the North Pole, there are some places where the sun doesn't go down at all. So daylight saving time doesn't matter that much. Now, you mentioned some states have experimented with this. And this is something that the Washington state legislature has been debating over the last couple of years. In fact, a bill was brought up this session to revert back to daylight standard time instead of daylight saving time because the way I as I understand it it would require congressional approval for a state to go to permanent daylight saving time but they can on their own go to permanent daylight standard time this gets very confusing very quickly it does you know there are all kinds of studies out there about whether this is helpful or not changing time even by an hour disrupts our body clocks uh, studies have linked the lack of sleep to the start of daylight savings time. Because remember, this weekend, we are springing forward an hour. That means we lose an hour of sleep. And they say that when that happens, there are more car accidents, workplace injuries, suicides, and such. Uh, the early evening darkness at the end of daylight savings time is linked to depression. You know, there, there are lots of reasons for and against, but I guess once you get used to one time, I think most people just say, well, let's just stick with that time. So so why doesn't Congress do that? Wheel. Just get rid of get rid of daylight saving time and, and just stick with standard time or daylight saving time, one or the other, rather than the change. Is that, isn't that what they're debating now? That is what they're debating. I can tell you I have seen this debate probably more than a dozen times and nothing ever comes of it. I would be shocked if something did. So it, here's here's another radical suggestion from the, the radical Podula here. How about instead of getting rid of daylight saving time, getting rid of the changes, how about we all just go to Greenwich Mean Time? 
I have a very interesting story about Greenwich Mean Time. <laughs> have you ever been to Greenwich, I England? Have not. So this is this is a must see for a nerd like me. I my daughter was going to school in England, and do you know how Greenwich means? And this is going to be a great education to your audience if you want to spend the time to do this here. Do you know how how and why Greenwich Mean Time became the first prime meridian in the globe? I do not, but I have a feeling I'm about to learn. I'm going to tell you. So you can take a, uh, a boat down the Thames from downtown London to Greenwich, the actual Greenwich where this happened. There is an observatory on a high hill. You walk up the hill from downtown Greenwich, beautiful little place, nice little boat ride. And you go up there and you finally understand why setting time zones was so important back then. Because ships would, would head uh, east to west. And you could tell uh, what time it was at noon on a ship with a, a sextant and a uh, just a, a sundial. But in order to find out how far you had traveled and, and how far in distance you had traveled from your beginning spot, you needed to know where you were east to west. And they couldn't do that with regular clocks. They couldn't just set a clock, put it on the ship, and then have that ship sail off and say, okay, I see the sun's here at noon, but my clock says it's three o'clock in the afternoon. So it's three hours difference from where I was when I started. And the reason you couldn't do that, because all clocks had pendulums back then. And the pendulums would be messed up by the swaying of the ship. So the king had a contest. And they said, whoever comes up with a way to make a clock without a pendulum wins this big prize. And the scientists who lived and worked at the Greenwich Observatory in Greenwich, uh, England, came up with that clock. And so that's why they said this is going to be the prime meridian or hour one or the spot one on the globe where we mark this as Greenwich Mean Time. And there is your education for the day. <laughs> so why don't we just switch to that? Well, um, then it everywhere. Be, it would be noon in the middle of the night somewhere in the middle of the United States. Work. <laughs> well, you know, we could always go to military time because that's not confusing at all. Not at all. All right. ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much. Thanks. And that will do it for this episode of the Northwest Politicast. If you like the show, please, as always, leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Northwest News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rock. Rockinger and Puget Sound Now, all are available at nwnewsradio.com or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Podula. Thank you for listening and have a good week.